0: Section 19 of History of the New York Times, 1851-1921, to by Elmer Holmes Davis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joanne Turner. Part 2, Chapter 6, The Times Today The end of the war found the Times at the height of its influence and power, but the peak of its business prosperity was still to come. In the boom of 1919 and the early months of 1920, the Times at last expanded in size from the 24-page issue, which had been the limit for the weekday paper up to the end of the war, and often since then has printed 32, 36, or even 40 pages a day. Even so, the volume of advertising offered was so great that day after day much of it had to be refused on account of lack of space. Yet the total printed in 1920 was more than 23 million agate lines, nearly 80,000 columns, and almost ten times the amount printed in the first year of the new management. The greatest volume of advertising ever carried in the paper was on Sunday, May 23, 1920, when the Times printed in all 760 columns of advertisements. The paper on that day contained altogether 136 pages, including 24 pages of rotogravure Pictorial Supplement and 16 pages of tabloid book review. It weighed 2 pounds and 10 ounces, and no doubt it felt like ten pounds and two ounces to the weary householder who picked it off the doorstep. But experience has shown that even in a paper of that size, there is nothing that a good many readers do not want. The impression is widely prevalent that as the paper increases in size, the publisher loses money on account of the high price of newsprint. This, however, is a mistake. The advertising rates include the cost of the paper on which advertisements are printed, so that the increased cost involves only pages devoted to news. The only danger in increasing the size of the paper is that it may possibly become so bulky as to dissatisfy the reader, and the Times has not yet felt that handicap. Some of its readers complain that it is too large, but nobody complains that it prints too much news about the things in which he is interested. The man whose chief interest is in the stock market may think there is too much news about sports and vice versa, but there is not too much financial news for the investor nor too much sporting news for the follower of sports. From the four-page paper of six short columns, which Raymond got out in 1851, to the Times of forty eight-column pages, which has occasionally appeared in recent years, is a long jump, but no greater than the increase in the extent of the intelligent reading public, nor in the variety of that public's interests. The most important feature of the Times' editorial policy since the war has been its championship of the League of Nations, a cause in which its editors were interested long before the armistice, and which they regard as destined to ultimate triumph in some form, most probably in a form very much like that which was adopted by the Paris Peace Conference. Throughout that conference, the Times steadily supported the general policies of President Wilson, though it could not agree with him on some details. Its editors felt that it was a mistake for him to go to Paris in person, but later they came to the conclusion that the president had been right, and that by his presence at the conference he had obtained some results which would have been impossible for any negotiator of less eminence. They thought, and still think, that he made a mistake in not taking with him representative leaders of the Republican Party, as well as in showing too plainly an opinion reasonable enough in itself of the endowments and the character of some eminent senators. On some of the territorial, political, or economic items of the peace settlements, too, the Times could not accept the President's views. But its conductors thought that these objections were all of minor importance and irrelevant to the principal issues. With the President's opinion that the League was all important, they were in entire accord, as well as with his position on most of the territorial and economic questions in dispute. They thought the Treaty of Versailles was not ideally perfect, but about the best treaty that could have been obtained and they held the opinion, none too common in the United States in 1919, that after all, the President was the representative of the entire American people at the peace conference, that it was impossible for him to get his way on every point of difference with the other delegates, and that an enlightened view of national interest to say nothing of those more general considerations of universal welfare which his opponents so vehemently disclaimed, made it advisable for the American people to forget trivial objections and give their consideration rather to the things the President had done. He had, after all, won the chief points for which he was contending as the constitutionally designated negotiator for the American people and won them if at the price of some concessions over strenuous opposition it was unlikely that any other american official would ever be able to impose american views so extensively on the other great powers of the world there can be no doubt that much of the antagonism which finally wrecked mr wilson's peace plans was due to his personality rather than his accomplishments, to his methods rather than his results. It seemed to the times that ordinary common sense might suggest that the people whom he represented should give first consideration to the work which he had done, and to the effect of that work upon their own interests, rather than to their opinions of Mr. Wilson as an individual. No doubt some conscientious opponents of the League took this point of view and based their opposition to the treaty on an honest conviction that it was harmful to American interests. But there is evidence everywhere in plain sight that a good many people opposed the treaty merely because they disliked the President. Throughout the fight in the Senate and through the campaign of 1920, the Times gave its utmost support to the cause of the League and to those public men who promised to support that cause. The violent debate within the Republican Party as to whether the election of Mr. Harding meant a victory for the League or the utter rejection of the League, it viewed with sympathetic but detached interest, convinced that the logic of facts would presently bring to reason those republican leaders who are capable of reason until that time shall come the times view of the particular accomplishments of the republican administration is determined by its judgment of their specific merits and not by general or doctrinal considerations yet in spite of its conviction that the league is necessary and indeed inevitable in spite of its support of the Democratic ticket in the 1920 campaign, the Times has given its support to many of the policies of President Harding. This does not mean that the Times is always an administration paper. It does mean, however, that the conductors of the Times realize that the President of the United States is the President of the whole people and not of a single party, that his public acts affect the whole people, and that it is to the interest of every citizen to get as effective and competent an administration as possible. With the type of partisanship which sees the entrance of the opposition into power as meaning nothing but opportunity for criticism, the Times has little sympathy. It preferred Mr. Cox to Mr. Harding, but Mr. Harding, having been elected, it realized that he was going to be the chief magistrate of the United States for the next four years, and that sensible citizens would do well to encourage all the praiseworthy policies which his administration might pursue, without stopping to fear that they might bring prestige to the Republican Party. Whether Republican, Independent, or Democratic, the Times has never been able to convince itself that opposition must mean consistent hostility to everything done by the party in power. Its conductors regard the interests of the nation as somewhat more important than the record of any party, and they have been genuinely glad to be able to commend many of the works accomplished or attempted by President Harding and the leading members of his cabinet. With some of the elements in the Republican Party, the Times is entirely out of sympathy, and had representatives of those factions been chosen to direct the executive functions of the government, the paper would no doubt have had occasion to criticize their conduct rather severely. But considering the record of the administration purely on its merits, the editors of the Times have been pleased to be able to recognize the fact that its performance in the early months at least, has been meritorious in a rather high degree. Several changes in the personnel of the paper in recent years may call for special mention. Mr. George McEnany resigned as president of the board of aldermen on February 1, 1916, to become executive manager of the Times. His duties were chiefly confined to the study of the newsprint paper situation which gave so much concern to all American papers during the war period and which is the Times's chief item of expenditure. In 1920, the Times spent for print paper $5,963,839.42. In 1897, the first full year under the present management, that item cost only $45,955.63. On January 1, 1918, the Tidewater Paper Company of Bush Terminal, Brooklyn, with a capacity of 30,000 tons of newsprint per year, was acquired by the New York Times Company in order to ensure a supply of paper in New York free from outside interruptions by strikes, weather, etc. With the Times's paper supply contracted for and assured for the next five years, Mr. McEnany withdrew from the Times organization in March 1921, and soon afterward was appointed chairman of the Transit Commission. Mr. Samuel Strauss, well known as one of the liveliest of magazine critics of current affairs, was with the Times as treasurer of the company from 1912 to the end of 1915. Mr. Rollo Ogden, editor-in-chief of the New York Evening Post for many years, came to the Times on May 15, 1920, as associate editor, and Dr. John H. Finley, commissioner of education of the state of New York, resigned that office and joined the Times staff also as an associate editor, on January 17, 1921. Note may be made here of the following members of the Times's staff who died either in its service or after long years with the paper. Edward Carey, for 46 years an editorial writer and, for much of that period, associate editor, died May 23, 1917. Theodore Lawrence Perverelli, for 43 years a member of the business staff, died February 4, 1904. Arthur Graves, city editor from 1900 and a reporter for many years before, died October 19, 1915. Charles Wellborn Knapp, treasurer of the New York Times Company and formerly publisher of the St. Louis Republic, died January 6, 1916. Edward Augustus Dithmar, whose 40 years of service as dramatic critic, London correspondent, literary editor, and editorial writer, ended with his death on October 16, 1917. Montgomery Shulier, for 24 years an editorial writer, died July 16, 1914. Jacob H. Thompson for 37 years with the paper, much of the time as exchange editor, died September 8, 1905. John Hebert Payne, for 14 years with the Times, the last four years as Night City editor, died October 2, 1920. John Norris, for many years business manager, died March 21, 1914. Barnett Phillips, whose 33 years of service included editorial work on the Sunday edition and book reviewing, died April 8, 1905. Leopold Wallach, General Counsel of the Times from August 18, 1896, to his death on January 25, 1908. Elbridge G. Donnell, Washington Correspondent of the Times from 1879 to 1902, died February 3, 1905. Leonard B. Traharn, on the Times staff for 12 years, most of that time as Night City editor, died October 17, 1904. Major John M. Carson, in the Times-Washington office from 1874 to 1882 and 1902 to 1905, and for several years Chief Washington Correspondent, died September 29, 1912. George Butler Taylor, for 26 years a reporter, died November 2, 1905. Field Lynn Hosmer, 40 years in service as reporter and editorial auditor, died January 8, 1914. George B. Moyer, for 12 years superintendent of the Times Buildings, died December 9, 1915. As to the news service of the Times, there is little to add to what has been written in the last two chapters. It has continued as it was during the war, though perhaps with a somewhat higher degree of efficiency due to experience. The Peace Conference was covered for the Times by members of the paper's own staff. Richard V. Ulihan, head of the Washington Bureau, Ernest Marshall, head of the London Office. Charles A. Selden and Edwin L. James of the Paris office, and Charles H. Grasty of the executive department, and by Gertrude Atherton until she fell ill and had to return to America. They scored a number of beats, notably on the occasion of President Wilson's threat to abandon the peace conference, but most of the leading American papers scored beats during the negotiations as before the excellence of the times was rather in a higher average than in outstanding single achievements indeed it could be said that the war and the peace conference both proved the value of the american system of newspaper training generally speaking the best war correspondents and the best political correspondents at the peace conference were men who had gone through the ordinary routine of the American reporter, rather than experts who had specialized in war correspondence or international politics all their lives. Most American reporters found that they could learn what they needed about war and international politics, while the sense of news values and the diligence in getting news which is developed by the ordinary repertorial training in america and which of course had been very highly developed in the men who were selected for the important assignments of the war and the peace negotiations cannot be improvised by specialists when they are suddenly faced by extraordinarily keen competition perhaps there should be special mention of the washington correspondence of the times which is probably not only more voluminous, but more impartial than that of any other paper. The practice of coloring the news to suit editorial policy, which was once too common in the American press, has pretty generally disappeared in recent years, except in a minority of papers. But it has tended to survive longest in the Washington correspondence, where there is still in the case of most newspapers, a tendency to hunt out, first of all, such news as agrees with the paper's prejudices. This does not involve suppression of news, nor even distortion. The relativity of truth is a commonplace to any newspaper man, even to one who has never studied epistemology. And if the phrase is permissible, truth is rather more relative in Washington than anywhere else. Now and then it is possible to make a downright statement. Such and such a bill has passed in one of the houses of Congress or failed to pass. The administration has issued this or that statement. The president has approved or vetoed a certain bill. But most of the news that comes out of Washington is necessarily rather vague for it depends on the assertions of statesmen who are reluctant to be quoted by name or even by description. This, more than anything else, is responsible for the sort of fog, the haze of miasmatic exhalations which hangs over news with a Washington dateline. News coming out of Washington is apt to represent not what is so, but what might be so under certain contingencies, what may turn out to be so, what some eminent personage says is so, or even what he wants the public to believe is so, when it is not. For an illustration, one need go no further back than the various semi-official assertions, on high authority, of the intentions of the Harding administration about cooperation with Europe, which turned out to be pretty nearly 100% untrue. The explanation is that most of these assertions came from irreconcilable senators who honestly thought they could speak for the administration and who were accepted by correspondents as speaking for the administration, but who, as a matter of fact, knew less about the real intentions of the administration than the White House doorkeeper. Obviously, then, the Washington correspondent has a pretty wide field of choice. On almost any question, he can get directly opposite opinions. And most news from Washington is a matter of opinion, from equally high authority and from authority which he is not permitted to identify. It is not strange that between two stories of apparently equal merit he is inclined to prefer the one which will be most welcome in the office generally speaking the times washington correspondence has been very little open to criticism on this point no paper supported the league of nations more vigorously than the times its editorials consistently favored the league and its columns once more as during the war Became the principal forum for the debates of publicists. Yet it was evident through the entire discussion, to those who read the Times Washington correspondence, that there was little chance of the League finding favor in the Senate. The Times supported Cox in the 1920 presidential campaign, but its political correspondence made it fairly plain long before the election that Harding was certain to win. It should be added that the Times, alone of prominent Democratic papers, denounced as false, slanderous, and contemptible the quote, campaign of whispers unquote, against Mr. Harding during the last weeks of the campaign. The year 1919 gave the Times, always so keenly interested in aviation, a chance to cover very fully the news of the first flights across the Atlantic its interest in wireless telegraphy had already been vindicated, and at present all newspapers are enjoying wireless service which might have been somewhat longer delayed if the Times had not been so fully convinced of the possibilities of this art a decade ago. The end of the war brought, of course, an increase in the amount of space devoted to local news, which had been somewhat reduced in the days when the dispatches from the battlefronts were of supreme importance, as well as a great expansion in the Times Sporting Department, responding to the great increase of interest in sports which followed the coming of peace. The Times was the only paper in the United States, or in the world, which printed the full text of the draft of the peace treaty. As will be remembered, the document was given to Senator Bora on June 9, 1919 by a correspondent of the Chicago Tribune, and by vote of the Senate was spread upon the congressional record. That night, the Washington Correspondents of the Times got proof sheets from the government printers as fast as the copy was set up, and dispatched the text to New York on 24 telegraph and telephone wires obtained for the occasion on the morning of june 10th the times had all of it 62 columns occupying most of the first 8 pages of the second section of a 40 page paper the new service of the times today is pretty well known to several hundred thousand readers who prefer the times to any other paper if anything further is to be said about its quality it may best be said by the mention of one or two instances of the Times' methods and their results. During the political conventions of 1920, the Times pretty regularly had more news and more reliable news than the other papers and had it first. These conventions were covered by a staff of nine men, all regular employees of the paper. The Times saw no need for hiring renowned experts, humorists, or fiction writers to supplement the work of its own men, and if any of its readers missed these features, they did not say so. The Democratic National Convention at San Francisco offered some technical problems of exceptional difficulty. Because San Francisco is 3,000 miles west of New York, and because New York saves daylight while San Francisco does not, San Francisco time is four hours earlier than that of New York. That meant that the first edition of most New York morning papers was going to press at a little past midnight, only a few minutes after the night sessions of the Democratic Convention were beginning in San Francisco. Despite this fact, the Times had some news from the beginning of the night sessions in its first edition on every night of the convention, and its second edition, coming off the presses shortly before 2 o'clock, had about as much news as other papers were able to get on the streets at daylight. Another difficulty in getting the news out of San Francisco was due, or rather seemed likely to be due, to the limited telegraphic facilities. Even the highest officials of the Western Union and the Postal did not realize in advance just how much their local organizations were going to be able to accomplish. As it turned out, the Western Union wire arrangements were more than sufficient to handle all the news of the Convention, but this was not known beforehand. As a matter of precaution, the Times, which was unable to obtain the lease of direct wires into its office from the telegraph companies, finally made a roundabout connection through Canada. A telephone wire was leased for night service from San Francisco to Vancouver, and another from New York to Montreal. Between these two cities, connection was established by a lease of a Canadian Pacific railroad telegraph wire, and the whole circuit was operated by telegraph with a relay at Vancouver, operated so well that news dictated to a telegraph operator in the convention hall at San Francisco was in the Times office in New York within two minutes. The long-distance telephone was used every night during the convention, and was responsible for the publication in the first edition, on the final night, of news which foreshadowed Palmer's withdrawal a little later in the evening. All these are things such as all papers do now and then, and the only distinction of the times is that it does them more regularly, more smoothly, and on the whole with more success. As a final instance of the operation of the Times news service today, may be mentioned the handling of the news of the German reparations proposals of April 26th last. Proposals which, it will be remembered, were sent to the United States government in the vain hope of obtaining American mediation in some form and which embodied the last German effort at compromise before the surrender to the Allied demands, which took place a few days later. The American declaration that all previous German offers were unsatisfactory reached the German cabinet at 11 a.m. on April twenty that is, 5 a.m. New York time. It was known that the answer would be prompt, that as a matter of form, it would be sent to the American government, but that since Mr. Harding and Mr. Hughes would not even transmit to the Allied governments any proposal which those governments were likely to receive with disfavor, there would be informal inquiries, as soon as it was received, to find out if it were acceptable. If not, it would wither and die in a Washington pigeonhole, so far as official transmission was concerned. The German note came to Washington on the evening of Wednesday, April 26, and a vague and general intimation as to its contents was given out to all the correspondents there. A summary of the note was also given to the Associated Press in Berlin, and on the morning of Thursday, April 27, that was all that the other New York papers had about the German offer. But the Times realized that the text of the note might be available not only in Berlin, where it was written, and in Washington, where it was received, but also in London and Paris, where the governments would be informally acquainted with its text before the note was officially transmitted. Consequently, the Times correspondents in Washington, London, Paris, and Berlin were all instructed to try to get the note verbatim. In Washington and Berlin, only inadequate summaries were obtainable. The summary given out by the German government was in one or two points seriously misrepresentative and tended to represent the offer as larger than it actually was. But the Times correspondents both in London and in Paris obtained and cabled the full text of the note on Wednesday night, the Paris copy arriving first but only ten minutes ahead of that from London. The Times alone of New York papers published it in full on Thursday morning. The Times alone of New York papers published the fact that the French government had officially refused to consider the offer and had notified Secretary Hughes of its decision to this effect. Two other papers in New York had Paris dispatches predicting, on the basis of Premier Briand's speech in the chamber that afternoon, that the French government would reject the note. The others had not even that much. The Times was also the only New York paper which printed on Thursday morning the comments of the Paris Press in their issues of the same day, comments, of course, which could be transmitted only because of the five-hour difference in time, but which no other New York paper received in time for publication. Thus, on one of the most important pieces of world news in the year 1921, the Times alone, except for the papers which purchased the Times's news service for publication in other cities, published the contents of the German proposal and the fact of the French refusal to consider it. An achievement of this sort tells a good deal more about the quality of a paper than the exclusive publication of a single story acquired by the wide acquaintance of some member of its staff. It is a feat which cannot be performed on the spur of the moment. It implies an intricate and highly trained organization. That organization is the chief distinction of the times today. The story of the modern times has been told inadequately and imperfectly, but as fully and impartially as it can be told by its own family. In those twenty-five years, the times has gone further and grown faster than even the men who controlled it foresaw, and its growth is not yet ended. There is room for improvement, and the men who get it out every day are constantly trying to improve it. There is room for still greater increase in prosperity and influence. No more than anything else on earth will American journalism ever again be the same as before 1914. What the opportunities and demands of the future will be, no newspaper man can see very clearly, though some of them think they can see after a fashion. But it is safe to say that they will require a higher standard of merit from all newspapers than that which was sufficient from 1865 to 1914. It will probably be impossible for American newspapers of the future to achieve greatness or even much notoriety by mere vigorous expression of partisan political views. No New York paper, at least, will ever again become great and prosperous by excellence merely in local news. Newspapers of the future must give the news and the news of the world. They must combine in proper proportion the covering of the news in their hometown, as they have learned that art in the last half-century, with the presentation of the news from every continent, as some of them have learned to present it since 1914. Modern science has made news gathering more difficult in the sense that it has broadened immeasurably the possibilities of getting news, and thus enabled the most enterprising newspapers to set a very high standard for their competitors. The example given above will suggest that when a news story may be covered simultaneously by cable, wireless, or telegraph in London, Paris, Berlin, and Washington, the paper which expects to cover it merely by a telegram from the Washington office is sometimes going to be left behind. A good newspaper of today needs a larger, more intricate, more efficient, and more expensive organization than the best editors of 20 years ago could have imagined. It is possible that the progress of invention will make competition still keener in another direction. Last year, during the Republican convention at Chicago, the Times sent its city edition out by airplane mail and delivered it at Chicago in the course of the afternoon. Before many years have gone, this may be a matter of course, and thus for the first time it may be possible to have in America something approaching a really national newspaper. There can never be national newspapers in this country, as in France and England, because of the limitations our vast distances impose upon delivery. But when New York papers are delivered everywhere east of the Mississippi on the day of publication, as they certainly will be within a decade or so, they will have an opportunity for taking on a good deal more of a national character than they have ever had in the past. Undoubtedly, the New York Times today approaches the character of a national newspaper more nearly than any other in America. It does so, of course, because of its copious presentation of general news, national and international, which is made possible by the fact that the Times is fortunate enough to have in the city where it is published a large clientele which will be interested in this news. One of the obstacles in the way of establishing a sort of generalized national newspaper, such as is sometimes talked of by doctrinaires, is the fact that every newspaper has to be printed and published somewhere, that the difficulties of distribution make it inevitable that a very large proportion of its reading public will be local, and that most people want to find in their paper a good deal of news about the town in which they live. The Times attempts to cover the local news as adequately as its competitors, but it is fortunate in being the favorite with that part of the New York reading public which is also keenly interested in the news of the world. It is, accordingly, able to devote a great deal more of its space to the presentation in extenso of news of general interest and consequently has a larger circulation outside the metropolitan district than any other New York paper. It is widely read in Washington, and in California it probably has a larger circulation than all other New York papers combined. It is only a guess, but probably a safe guess, that the Times is also more generally read over the world than any other American paper. It has male subscribers in the Alland Islands, in Mauritius and all over the South Seas, in almost every state or colony of Africa, in Cevas of Anatolia, in Tarsus of Cilicia, in Baghdad and in Bandar Abbas, and by no means all of its Asiatic subscribers are wandering Americans, even outside of Japan and China, a good many of them are Asiatics who find something of interest in the New York Times. The newspaper business in the future will not be a game for pikers. The Times today has some 1,800 employees. Its daily payroll exceeds $10,000. It uses a daily average of nearly 200 tons of paper the cost of news-getting may be surmised from the fact that some $25,000 was spent by the Times in covering the two national conventions of 1920. It would be rather hazardous to assert that nobody could come into the New York newspaper field today on a shoestring, as Mr. Ox did in 1896 and succeed. Hazardous because even in 1896, all the experts said that he could not rehabilitate the Times without spending millions of dollars. But at least it seems quite unlikely that anything like this could be done now. In the past 25 years, five New York papers have died. The Advertiser, the Mercury, the News, and the Press have all disappeared. Neither the Herald nor the Sun has disappeared in name, but at any rate, there is only one morning paper where both the Herald and the Sun grew before. Of the papers which were in existence in 1896 and are still appearing today, some have survived because they have made money, and some because they are owned by wealthy men who can stand the loss and it is significant that the only new daily paper which has been established in New York in the past twenty-five years, a paper, it should be observed, which is of a somewhat specialized character, predominantly a picture paper, and can be produced much more cheaply than a daily of the ordinary type, is owned by the wealthy corporation which publishes the Chicago Tribune, and which could not only supply the daily news with its telegraph and cable news and its features without added cost but could put up the money to keep it going till it got on its feet the increased cost of production has reduced the number of papers in most of the other cities of the country as well as in new york it takes money not only to start a paper but to keep it going if it does not pay its way more money than was needed twenty-five years ago. The natural result is concentration, the absorption of failing papers by their more prosperous competitors. That perhaps may not be altogether in the public interest, especially in a city of secondary rank which used to support two or three morning papers and now has only one. Even Chicago, has now only two morning newspapers in the English language. It is conceivable that in a city of two and three-quarter million people, there are a good many readers who are not wholly satisfied with either of those papers, but to start another in successful competition would require both unusual ability and a great deal of money. New Daily Papers – unless supported by men who are quite willing to go on throwing millions into them until they get on their feet, in competition with established papers whose annual income already runs into the millions, are more likely to renounce all hope of competing with those already established in the covering of general news and restrict themselves to particular interests. Even that will imply some serious disadvantages. For example, with two or three such publications competing with newspapers of the more usual type, there is bound to be a good deal of waste in advertising. With certain newspapers confining their energies to only a part of the field, advertisers will be in doubt just how to reach the public they want, and a good deal more of their money will be required. In the opinion of the management of the Times, advertising which does not bring results is disadvantageous not only for the advertiser but for the newspaper, and the most satisfactory situation for both is that in which the actual situation of every newspaper, both as to quantity and quality of circulation, is well known. These dangers may not be imminent, in view of the high cost of establishing a newspaper of any kind in a large city, but in somewhat modified form, evils of this general character exist in present-day advertising. In the opinion of the publisher of the Times, the most widespread defects of advertising today are lost motion and low visibility, and it may be in order to quote some of his thoughts on this subject, Delivered to the Associated Advertising Clubs of the World in their convention at Philadelphia on June 26, 1916. Quote It may startle you if I say that I doubt if there is any business in the world in which there is so much waste of time, money, and energy as in advertising and its correlative instrumentalities. It may be rank heresy for me to say this. Yet I affirm that more than 50% of the money spent in advertising is squandered and is a sheer waste of printer's ink, because little thought and less intelligence are applied and ordinary common sense is entirely lacking. Too frequently the dishonesty stamped on its face is about all the intelligent reader discerns. The first essential of successful advertising is something to advertise. The next, to know how to advertise, and when and where. Too many advertisers have naught to advertise save their impotence and their folly. Too often the impelling reason is vanity, to see their names in print, and the greatest damage results when business prudence is dethroned and the advertising is done for ulterior reasons, either to favor some individual or to promote some sinister purpose. But it is not of that kind of wastage I wish to speak, for we have no interest in that sort of advertiser. I have in mind some well-intentioned advertisers' lost motion and consequently low visibility. I say some advertisers, though I should say many advertisers. To my mind, the worst evil is the thoughtless and careless method in buying advertising space. If the advertiser wishes to build a house or a factory, he investigates and informs himself, employs an architect, usually invites proposals, and awards the construction to a responsible builder. When he buys his supplies, he studies the markets, he informs himself, he engages efficient assistants to sell his goods or products. he concentrates all his faculties to study the trade and meet competition. But when he comes to advertising, his business judgment seems atrophied. his conceit predominates his prejudices have full sway, favoritism and personal feelings are potent influences. The care and scrutiny he exercises in all other branches are woefully lacking in his advertising department. The attitude assumed toward the publication favored, I use the word favored advisedly, is one of benevolence. Let me illustrate the advertiser's lost motion by an example. He decides to advertise. He consults various agencies. He too often selects the cheapest. Lost motion. A list of publications is selected. Too often the controlling factors are extra commission or rebate, personal friendship, low rates. Lost motion. In the preparation of copy, little time and poor talent employed. Lost motion. Finally, cheap papier-mâché impressions of the advertisement are sent to the publications instead of good electrotypes, resulting in bad printing, lost motion, and certainly low visibility, if any visibility at all. There are few acts of advertisers more stupid than to give time and thought to the preparation of copy, to fuss and fume with artists and compositors for an effective display, pay large sums for space and then, to save a few pennies or a little time, mar the whole effect by supplying the publication a matrix from which to make a stereotype plate. You often see evidence of that kind of advertising short-sightedness, for it stands out like a sore thumb. Now, about lost motion and low visibility by the advertising agent. The most glaring fault is when the agent uses his credit and standing beyond his personal resources and speculates in the result of his client's business. That's low visibility, for if he would look beyond his nose, he would discover breakers ahead and about them frightful wreckage of some of the stoutest ships, even when steered by the ablest mariners. It is the exception that proves the rule if an advertising agent, departing from his legitimate business, avoids disaster. An agent mars his reputation as a safe advisor and counselor when, for the small immediate profit in sight, he takes the business of an advertiser who has nothing to advertise except perhaps a bad name or one whose advertising a tyro in the business should know would bring no results. Here's where truth should prevail, and the proposed advertiser warned against wasting his money. Quote, I only handle advertising which my expert knowledge and experience cause me to believe will justify the expenditure. Unquote. What a drawing card that would be for an agent if he could succeed in making those interested know its truth. Now, as to the publisher, the third party to the transaction, how about his lost motion and low visibility? I cannot even begin to catalogue his delinquencies under that head. It would consume too much time. But this I will say, that there is no other business in which there is so much lost motion and low visibility as in the publishing business. The wastage is frightful, appalling, and disheartening to those who have the temerity to acquaint themselves with the facts. I refer especially to newspaper publishers, and it is of their bad practices I shall say a few words, for I cannot trust myself to unloose my pent-up feelings on that subject in fear lest it largely partake of self-condemnation. In the matter of advertising rates, there seems to be only one established rule. These, quote, all the traffic will bear, unquote. There seems to be no standard, no basis from which to begin, and consequently rates are altogether arbitrary. Common sense and ordinary rules of logic play little part, rates are fixed in the easiest way that is along the line of least resistance is it any wonder that the advertiser is disquieted and not trustful when he is asked to sail the uncharted seas the besetting sin is low rates if you wish to see intelligent advertising effective advertising advertising that attracts the reader where there is the least lost motion in space and words you will find it in the publications maintaining what the advertiser considers high rates. And on the other hand, the thoughtless, worthless advertising predominates where the rates are low. I am not comparing largely circulated publications with those of small circulation. I have in mind publications of relatively the same circulation. When rates in a desirable medium are what the advertiser thinks comparatively high, he must consider quality. And nine times out of ten, the quality or character of the circulation is the deciding factor. Cheap rates destroy more advertising than they create, for they encourage useless and profitless advertising. I have a theory that the basic rate should be one cent a line per thousand circulation in a publication where the advertising columns are given the consideration to which they are entitled, and the advertising placed to the best advantage for results with regard to the publication's good reputation and the reader's interest. There may be less advertising space in the publication, but what there is would be better done, and more effective. I am discussing advertising in its broadest aspect, cases in which there is something to advertise and advertising space is purchased with a view to the result of its direct appeal. I wish to make clearer what I have just said regarding the placing of advertising with reference to the publication's good reputation and the reader's interest. I mean that the advertisement should not be disguised. The reader should recognize it as an advertisement, no sailing under false colors. Advertising that cannot pay one cent a line per thousand circulation is hardly worth doing. Newspapers have a variety of rates, usually the highest for the business that naturally comes to them, and the lowest for such as prefer another medium. Not infrequently, this discrimination is against the interests of the best clients. The ideal newspaper advertising rate is a flat rate, one rate for all kinds of advertising, no time or space discount, a space limitation, and extra charge for permissible exceptions and preferences. There is no good excuse for reducing the rate because the advertisement has news value. For the greater the news value, the stronger the justification for remunerative rates. A word with reference to the belief in some quarters that the advertiser bears too great a proportion of the expense of publication. This creates the popular delusion of an unequal division of the expense between advertisers and readers. An established newspaper is entitled to fix its advertising rates so that its net receipts from circulation may be left on the credit side of the profit and loss account. To arrive at net receipts, I would deduct from the gross the cost of promotion, distribution and other expenses incidental to circulation. I affirm this on the principle that the advertiser wishes to encourage the widest distribution, for without impairing its merits, the less costly the publication, the larger its circulation, hence the more valuable and less costly the advertising. So the less the reader pays, the less the advertising costs, and if circulation augments profits, the publisher is rewarded for stimulating it. To assert that therefore the newspaper is solely or dangerously dependent on the advertiser is to declare that advertising has no value, that advertisers have no intelligence, and that the publisher does not know independence when he enjoys it. It is an axiom in newspaper publishing, quote, More readers, more independence of the influence of advertisers, fewer readers, and more dependence on advertisers, unquote. It may seem like a contradiction, yet it is the truth to assert. The greater the number of advertisers, the less influence they are individually able to exercise with the publisher. A lot of nonsense is circulated about the advertiser's control of the newspaper. A newspaper improperly controlled by an advertiser is the exception that proves the rule." Unquote there are some compensations for those disadvantages which modern conditions have brought. The high cost of establishing a newspaper or of conducting an unsuccessful newspaper makes it rather unlikely that in the future papers will be maintained, as they have sometimes been in the past, for ulterior reasons, that is, with some other purpose than the presentation of the news. Financial or political interests are not likely to buy papers to support their views if they are going to have to spend millions on this type of publicity, a type which is apt to be unremunerative, since a paper subservient to external interests is usually very soon recognized for what it is and loses all standing in consequence nor will it be so easy in the future as it has been in the past for wealthy men to buy newspapers as playthings. The larger scale of present-day journalism has some other advantages. It has pretty nearly removed some of the temptations, such as subservience to advertisers or to political subsidies, which were constantly present with the publisher of past years. The perils of journalism today are those of most other human activities—slackness, routine, overconfidence, short-sightedness. They are most serious, perhaps, on the most successful papers, where the temptation to ride on a great reputation is most seductive. If American newspaper history teaches anything, it teaches that riding on a reputation is the surest road to ruin. Every paper in New York can read that in its own record. For these consolations, such as they are, all newspaper men who take their business seriously should be thankful. In a sense, perhaps, the newspaper business is a public utility, but it differs from other public utilities in that competition is essential to its usefulness. Theoretically, there can be too much competition in the newspaper field, but there is not likely to be in the next few decades. And it is a bad thing for any business to become so expensive that only a rich man can even dream of coming into it and shaking it up. For experience has shown that men who have acquired wealth in other occupations rarely provide very formidable competition when they go into the newspaper business, and like all other businesses, it needs shaking up now and then. In the larger cities, at least, the newspaper field is virtually closed, restricted to those who now occupy it. The responsibility on them is all the heavier, for unless they do their work well, it will not be done and it has to be done in a democracy. The recovery of the times since 1896 is without parallel in modern newspaper history, and for the reasons given above, it is likely to remain without parallel. Yet it may be that its history has some useful lessons for newspaper makers. What those lessons are, any reader may infer from the story which has here been told. In the opinion of the management of the times, perhaps the most important lesson is that integrity, common sense, and good judgment are more likely to bring success than wild extravagances, constant experimentation, and the frantic following of each new fashion. The fact that a particular policy or a particular feature has been a success on one paper is no guarantee that it will be successful everywhere. In the newspaper business, as in most other businesses, the surest road to success, in the opinion of the management of the Times, is to know what you want to do and know how to do it. If the new publisher who took charge of the Times in 1896 had tried to imitate the Herald, the World, or the Journal, the three brilliantly successful papers of the day, he would merely have accomplished his own ruin, and he could not have rebuilt the times if he had not known his business from the ground up. Contrary to the opinion held in some quarters, newspaper-making is skilled labor. It cannot be performed by any well-intentioned amateur. End of section 19 and end of chapter six of part two.